Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Chicago-based jazz vocalist Paul Marinaro. He talked at length about his new 2022 CD, Not Quite Yet. It was a long time coming for this actual incarnation of the album, and in his words, he says that this album is an honest and intensely personal collection of songs which address themes and reflects moods that are characteristic of him. Paul has been dubbed as having one of the most beautiful vocal instruments in the business today and has earned Best Performance of the Year in the Chicago Tribune from 2000. 13 to 18. He has quite a story to tell. Enjoy this interview. Hey, thanks for taking a minute out today. Oh, not a problem. I'm happy to do it. I want to get into your latest album, but before we do that, you know, COVID kind of turned the artist world on their head for a couple of years, and I'm curious, how did you survive that time period as a jazz musician, and how has it subsequently changed the way that you go about business now? You know, it's, uh, those are loaded questions and great questions. Well, how did I survive it? Uh, I think that's twofold. How did I survive it as a jazz musician and how did I survive it as just a, a human being? They're similar and, and different. I think as a jazz musician, it was, it was incredibly difficult because there were just no viable outlets to perform. I've discussed this before. I think it's it's always... Interesting, whenever a musician or an artist takes a little time off or unexpected time off, um, it really throws you because, you know, everything in this business is about building a momentum and a trajectory. And, you you know, once you're on that, good, bad, or indifferent, you kind of follow it. And you, lose, you lose a little sight of how much time is passing uh, because it occupies all your time and energy. And when you're forced to stop, it really throws you because you, you, you stop and take take notice of just how much time has passed. Um, you know, and you really feel that you feel that pause, I, I think, maybe be maybe a bit more um, than most uh, most professions, at least uh, that pause feels exponential. And I know it, it's certainly been for me. And this is the second you know big pause that I've had in the last, you know, four or five years, uh, I several years ago, I had gotten quite sick and needed several surgeries and, uh, you know, was pulled out of the game right at a, you know, a very kind of uh, great time for me. I was doing quite well and starting the tour. I was going to Europe and uh, was kind of pulled out of all of that be, uh, due to sickness and, uh, you know, spent 2018 recovering and then really hit hard in 2019 and, everything was back on track and, you know, we planned for a lot of projects and then of course the pandemic hit. So how do you survive? You just, like we all did, you try to get through it. I think the hardest part of it was not knowing at no given time, did we know, well, is this another few weeks? Is this another month? Is this another year? We had no idea how long we were really going to be stuck in it. So in that time, uh, we, you know, like like many musicians, we started to do live streaming um, whenever we could. Uh, so I had wires all over my house, and my dining room was basically became a small television studio. So that that was an outlet to perform, and uh, you know, people were very generous with with donations. Um, so that's really kind of how we hunkered down and and got through it. So your latest album, not quite yet. Talk to me about this album what it means now kind of as the world is opening up chances for live shows just in general how does this release feel for you 
Well, it's interesting because the album had been a long time, um, a version of this album had been a long time in the planning stages. Uh, like I said, it was originally supposed to happen many years ago. Maybe not this exact album, but a follow-up album. I wasn't able to get to it. I got sick, uh, so it was shelved. Several other things happened to where it got shelved. And then, of course, the pandemic. Uh, but the concept of once we were able to regroup and get back into it, I had heard a David Bowie song um, after he died. He had a posthumous uh, release, and it was called No Plan. It's hard to you know guess what David Bowie ever means in his lyrics because he's never right on the nose. You, ha you have to do a little work sometimes. But this, I think, was pretty clear that he was speaking from the afterlife and kind of stuck this idea of being stuck in limbo. And I really latched onto that when we came back to recording this album because that's what everything had changed. Even songs that you know I definitely wanted to record, they suddenly just took a different uh, meaning to me. They they had a different meaning to me during and after the pandemic. Um, I've often said, you know, if, if that experience didn't somehow change you, I don't know if you were paying attention um, because it was, you know, collectively and individually, it was massively difficult, uh, just and particularly following, you know, the previous years where, where you know, as a country, we're more divided than we perhaps have ever been before. And that was very taxing on us uh, to be followed by, you know, two years of a pandemic was really something. But the idea of being stuck in limbo kept seeming to reach out to me uh, through that song. And then I found other ways to express that. Um, I worked very closely with my guitarist, Mike Alamana. And when we came back to you know, being able to record the album or plan it, I said, you know, how do you sing love songs when the world is upside down? How do you sing about looking for love or or unrequited love? You know, the typical themes that 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 we find in in these great songs. They didn't seem at first to me to ring true. Um, I didn't know how to approach them. And then it, it dawned on me that when you're stuck in limbo. Uh, whether it was, you know, me personally being sick, being pulled out of the game or, or, you know, the individual isolation and loneliness of the pandemic, those songs spoke to me uh, in a different way. And I think with the arrangements that Mike, that we worked on together and Mike came up with, uh, that's how we kind of approach these. These are the, these are the things that we look to even when we're, you know, put on pause, uh, even though we're stuck spinning our wheels in limbo and not at that next step yet, not quite yet. We're not quite yet there. Uh, these are the things that humans look for. They look for relationships. They look for love. They look for, you know, some some light out of the darkness. So that's kind of how we planned it. There's a lot of conflicting emotions throughout the album. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of light. It's It's a moody album. Uh, it's not a downer, I don't think, but it's certainly it's certainly moody. But it all the goal is to kind of all draw the, the you know these are these are emotions that I personally went through, and I think that other people can can find uh, truth in as well. Absolutely, I agree. So talk to me a little bit about your beginnings. You know, kind of where you were born and raised, and 
who are some early influences to kind of give you this desire to be a singer? Well, uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. You know, usually when people move out of Buffalo, they try to find a warmer climate. <laughs> I, I picked the same <laughs> climate. For some reason, I picked the same exact climate. But I've been in Chicago about 18 years now. And uh, my earliest influence was my dad. My dad had always wanted to be a singer, you know, kind of gave up that dream to, to raise his family. Um, I'm, the, I'm the last. I was the youngest of a very large Catholic Italian family, so I, I'm number 10. Um, and oddly enough, I was the one that kind of picked up where my dad left off and, and followed in his uh, footsteps as far as the type of music. So through my dad, the earliest influence was, of course, Sinatra. And I had heard, you know, as early as I could remember, I had heard these songs as a kid, whether they, my dad was playing recordings of Sinatra or singing himself. You know, I think what was interesting for me at that age, I never put a date. I didn't realize they were old songs. I didn't realize that they were written in the 50 years before I was born. Um, they were just songs that my dad introduced me to. So I never approached this music or this genre as anything but valid music. Um, it didn't have a shelf life. It didn't have a date. So that's really kind of how I got into this. It was, um, and my dad had made old homemade acetates. He had cut, he had saved his money and bought a record cutter in the, in the late forties. So I heard these scratchy old 78 RPM acetates that I pulled out of the attic when I was about five. And the first thing I you know, heard was my dad singing, you know, what was then a new song, that old black magic, you know, I was just transfixed by, well, that's my dad on a record. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that was possible. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of got me started. So when I started singing, um, that was the type of material I gravitated towards. And then, you know, through Sinatra, it, it went into more of the uh, strict jazz singers, you know, obviously the, the lineage, Ella, Billie Holiday, and was a big Anita O'Day fan. So, yeah, that's kind of how, how it spun off. But, yeah, my dad and, and Sinatra, either choice, not a, bad, not, not a bad way to start. Oh, absolutely. I agree. So talk to me a little bit about the very first live show you ever saw that made you think, wow, that might be something I'd like to do someday. Oh, man. Um, yeah, in, in, uh, growing up in Buffalo, I was um, kind of a late bloomer to all of this. I, I was more into theater um, just accidentally. I didn't really know where to put my, my interest. I, was always, uh, I took many years of classical piano, um, but I really wanted to sing more. So once I was old enough to go, there was, you know, very few uh, choices in Buffalo, New York to go see live jazz. Um, but there was one place called the Anchor Bar, which was uh, known as the birthplace of the chicken wing. So that's, that's kind of where it started. They're famous for that. But every Friday and Saturday, they had uh, a jazz trio and they were playing for a woman by the name of Dodo Green. And she had retired to Buffalo. She was probably pushing 80 at the time. Uh, but a great, uh, soulful jazz, a great entertainer, just, a, you know, kind of a throwback to an era that I would not have been privy to. Uh, and she actually was the first female vocalist um, recorded for Blue Note. 
her career didn't really uh, blossom as a recording artist after that, but and it's been reissued probably more so because uh, Illinois Jaquette is playing on the album, so it, it has some you know extra jazz value. But she, I would go every Friday and Saturday night to see her. It just was she was mesmerizing, and eventually I you know would work up my uh, <laughs> I would be brave enough to ask the band if I could sit in. And they routinely shot me down. <laughs> they said no every week. And one week there was um, an older pianist sitting in. And he heard me. Uh, he's like, yes, you sing a little? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to. And uh, he said, well, I'll play for you. So after break, he you know, asked me what I wanted to do. And I think the first song I ever sang was Don't Get Around Much Anymore. And... Uh, you know, we finished the song. It went well. The club owner invited me over for a drink, and and everyone said, "Oh, you know, do you realize who you just sang with?" And his name was Al Tinney. Uh, again, not a household name in the jazz world, but um, definitely someone who was uh, he, he had played for Billie Holiday. He was um, kind of at the birth of of the bebop. He was he was in New York at that point, um, and in many there's a lot of quotes from, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and, and uh, Max Roach, who said, oh, yeah, the guy that we all went to was Al Tinney. So it, it was interesting. And he, and he kind of tell, told me where to go and what clubs to, to try to sing at. And so that's kind of how I got started. But it really was watching that that group at the Anchor Bar with uh, Dodo Green. And uh, I was I was green enough uh, not to realize how much I didn't know yet. <laughs> I think that's the blessing of, of youth. But I would just keep pushing at it and, and learning more and more and, and trying different tunes and and that whole uh, that whole culture of sitting in and, and working with different musicians uh, it's you know it, it's better than any college degree. So I was I was fortunate to to really have that. So talk to me a little bit about like how the uh, how your career kind of took off. How did it begin, and how did it take off to where you're at right now? It's been uh, it's been an interesting journey. I again um, I moved to Chicago because I knew at that point that I wasn't. I love New York City. I absolutely love visiting New York City. It's just not a place that I ever saw myself living. And Chicago seemed to be the the more affordable, the cleaner, the safer. The it just seemed like the easier choice for me. So I just picked up. And moved here. Didn't know anyone. Uh, looking back on that, it's very unusual for me because I don't normally take leaps like that. Um, but 18 years ago, I I decided that was what I was going to do. And you know, I just I started working at piano bars wherever I could get wherever I could get a job. And uh, the city was very good to me. And slowly, I started meeting a lot of the old um, the older. Uh, more revered names, and they would kind of bring me on and, and do a show with me, and that gave me a little bit more um, visibility. Judy Roberts was was an early um, collaborator with me, and uh, working with her, she, you know, it, it gave me um, instant credibility for people who may not have heard me or seen me before. And um, it really was the my first album. I decided to, I was very late to the game of recording, um, but I decided that I wanted to pay tribute to my dad. Um, and that's how I, I 
I, I, you know, I'm very much old school where I love the concepts of albums, like that, you know, concept albums that actually have a cohesive theme um, that runs through them. So I decided my first album was going to be a tribute to my dad and his lost dream of, of wanting to be a singer. And uh, we opened the album with, we had those acetates restored groove by groove so I can get some of the sound out of them. And that's how the album opens with him singing acapella as a teenager, that old black magic. And then it morphs into our version of it. And he, you know, we, we put a few of those little clips throughout it. So it turned it into a concept album. And uh, a lot of people at that time told me, Oh, you know, that's a wonderful idea. It's so heartwarming. It's beautiful. Uh, but give that to your dad as a private gift, but don't release it because you know, no one's going to get that. They're not going to understand your dad wasn't famous. Uh, those are scratchy old 78s. Why would you want that on an album? And I'm glad I didn't listen. Um, I'm stubborn to begin with, but I really felt that, you know, in the world of, of streaming and, and singles and MP3s where the idea of the album is lost, I thought that this was a reason to pay attention again, that, that this gave the album a story. So I kept all that in. And uh, it was the right choice because it was exactly what people connected to. Um, and they listened to, the, they listened to the album because it had a story. They listened to the album uh, because it touched them. The story moved them. And then, you know, hopefully the music does as well. But it gave them that reason to, to listen uh, more closely. And that just, it just got a ton of press. Um, and uh, that really kind of brought me to a different level and, you know, went to Birdland, did my first show at Birdland and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, so that, uh, unfortunately, you know, after that point, there were so many other recordings that were planned and one thing after the other seemed to just life happened and uh, I wasn't able to get, get another one done. So it's been nine years. So this is, uh, I did a live album, um, but this is only my second studio album in, from the first, uh, this is the sophomore album, you know, so that, and that also plays into the theme of not quite yet, uh, that, that idea of being stuck in limbo. So for me, it has many <laughs> multiple, multiple meanings. Well, and, and no matter what's happened, you obviously always love what you do and you, you've been in it consistently, no matter what. So what is it that you look forward to the most about being a professional musician? What do you enjoy the most about it? Uh, the collaboration. I really do. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Someone in the discussion last, just last night um, commented on how much love I give on stage to my sidemen or to any of the musicians that I'm playing with. And they were pleasantly surprised by that. And it took me, it took me by surprise that uh, they felt that way because to me it's, it's a no brainer. I could be the best singer in the world without the musicians that I'm working with who are crafting um, these beautiful sounds around me and, and the, the spontaneity and the, uh, the collaboration of that. Um, that's, that's what keeps me coming back for more. Uh, and, I'll have to, and I have to say, one of the more touching lessons during the pandemic was that initial worry that if we lose this momentum, if we're pulled out of the game, Will any clubs be around? Will the, will the doors be closed? Will people move on? And you, I really felt uh, worried that audiences 
wouldn't be there. You know, that they, they may have just moved on or, or gotten gotten used to doing other things and, you know, they may not come back. Or, you know, you, you question your self-worth as an artist and how much this means to people. And when we started doing the live streams during uh, the pandemic, the emails, the notes, the cards that would come in every week from people saying, you have no idea how much it means to us that you're doing these because we're sitting here alone and you're bringing this music to us and it just brightened my day. And over and over, people uh, were so uh, wonderfully loving and supportive during that time. And it just gave us the sense that, oh, we are important to them. Music does matter. It is reaching people. I don't know that we always, you know, it's such a difficult business. We may lose sight of that sometimes. Um, so it really is. Uh, it's just the joy I get out of creating the collaborative effort with, with other musicians. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a small market uh, for what we do. But the people that come out uh, to listen to it and support it, they're really powerful and they're really mighty. And, and you can tell just how much this music means to them. I'm going to get a gauge on, you know, kind of the life that you've lived and the wisdom you've gained. Let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into your younger version, your 20-year-old version of yourself, yeah. and you could give that version a piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've gained throughout your life. What would you tell your young version? Trust yourself more. I had a real, I had a, I had a very strong innate gut feeling that pushed me to keep going. But it was always attached with uh, a lot of self-doubt or, or doubt about the scene or doubt about how viable it was, which is all valid because I would probably also uh, tell someone else, you know, be careful. It's a diff it's, you have to really know what you want because it's, it's an incredibly difficult business. If there, is a, if there is much of a business left, but I think I would tell myself that gut feeling, that gut drive that I had, it was correct. Um, and maybe a bit more of that with, with less doubt along the way would have, would have been helpful. So I think I would, I would just tell myself, trust, trust, trust your gut feeling um, because you can get there. I, I did not have uh, the typical um, initiation into this into this uh, field like some. I see, you know, some 20-year-olds or 18-year-olds who have, who have already been in trios and formed, formed bands and, 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 you know, out there working. I didn't, I, I started much later. It, it was very tentative and kind of, I had to feel it all out. I, I kind of created it as I went along. But I always had this, uh, this kind of stubborn gut feeling like, no, I, I think I know where I want to be. I think I know what I want to do. And it was always driven by, by uh, rather than a vision of level of, of, you know, this is where I want, these are the clubs I want to sing at, this is where I want to live. I didn't have that as strongly as this is the kind of musicians. These are the kind of musicians I want to work with. These, these are the kind of arrangements that I'm hearing. That guided me. Um, even when I didn't have it, I knew that, I knew that I wanted more. I knew that I wanted a different sound. So it was mostly the music that kind of pushed me forward 
rather than a vision of, you know, um, exactly what type of career I wanted. So everything's going to come down to this call. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live <laughs> your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Oh, God. That's the Barbara yeah. Walters question, huh? That's it. <laughs> this is the therapy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be as honest as I can be. Um, this album is the most truthful I've ever been musically. The, my first album was, uh, was my focus, uh, was me turning the spotlight on honoring my father. This one was me kind of turning the, that spotlight on myself. And I knew I was doing that. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and when we performed it live just a few weeks ago, uh, for the first time for the album release, we did a big concert, all of the musicians. And I'll be honest, it threw me. I don't know that I, I, I expected to, to go as deeply as I did. And, you know, those are, those are raw emotions. Uh, so it is the most honest I've ever been. And who am I and who, I have no idea. <laughs> it's all in there. Um, but it really, I have to be honest, it shook me up. It shook me up more. Um, and that's exactly what you're supposed to do. I realized that and I'm glad that I did. But it's been a process kind of sorting it all out. Um, I don't, I don't choose material with a concept of how popular it might be or, or, you know, I know some artists that say, well, if you want to get airplay, you have to record this and you have to do that. Or if you want to be covered by downbeat, you have to do this. And I just, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do that. I only know how to do what, what my gut guides me to do. Um, you know, we did, we did two David Bowie songs on the album that really spoke to me. Obviously the one that, uh, the title comes from, uh, not quite yet, comes from the song No Plan, and 515, The Angels Have Gone. And I was so lucky to have uh, Mike Alamana, my guitarist and arranger, collaborating with me because he, you know, there's so many jazz musicians, if you say, I want to do, hey, I want to do a David Bowie song, they're on their way out the door. <laughs> they don't, you know, they're just, it's outside of the genre and they just, you know, they're not interested in doing things like that. Um, but Mike, as soon as he heard the songs, he got it. He understood why I wanted to sing them. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if it's jazz, great. If it's not, great. I, I'm not concerned about really fulfilling the genre as much as singing uh, material that moves me. So we do have, uh, there's actually a follow-up album that will be out in February. Um, so this is also goes back to what you asked me, how I got through the pandemic. I was uh, busy crafting uh, a lot of projects. I used the downtime to kind of say, as soon as we were able to get into the studio, uh, these are the things we want to do. So there's actually going to be a, a, a complete album uh, of reimagining of David Bowie. Uh, and that's with the Metropolitan Jazz Octet. I think this is the first time I'm actually announcing that. But yeah, that'll be out on Origin Records in February. Um, but yeah, it's it's the material that drives me. Right on. So speaking of material and shows and everything in your world, where's the best place for everybody out there to go to get the new album, 
and to find out about anything about you and, and any shows coming up? Uh, right now, I'd say, you know, we're on all the all the different platforms. Um, the album is on Bandcamp as well, uh, but my website is, is uh, you can get the album there, uh, and that's paulmaronaro.com. Uh, the vinyl is coming, although the vinyl plants are <laughs> are backed up for many months. But uh, there's going to be a vinyl edition as well that'll have uh, you know a few different bonus tracks. I kind of cheated on that answer. Who I who am I? But uh, people have to they'll have to figure it out. It's in the album. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's good. That's that's kind of the Bowie idea that you were talking about earlier on. It, it, it's interesting because I think people. Uh, some people may have expected a more celebratory album of, you know, here I am, I'm still standing. And I, there's parts of that in this album, um, but it's also here I am, I'm still standing, but things have been damn rough. Uh, And I think it's, I think it's that the artists that I've always admired found ways to um, turn painful things into beauty. You know, they're no less, they're, they're painful, they're truthful, but there's beauty in that truth. And that's, that's the approach that we wanted to take with this. Well, Paul, I appreciate you opening up and, and talking about the album and your life and music. Good luck with everything as we kind of close the year out, move into the next. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest singers and players in Chicago, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Paul for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Every day of every night of every year, Neon Jazz.